The views and opinions expressed on WXOJLP are solely those of the original hosts of their respective programs. These views and opinions do not necessarily represent those of Valley Free Radio Incorporated, its volunteers, or any other hosts, guests, or programs on this station. Due to the ongoing pandemic and to follow social distancing guidelines, this episode of Civil Politics was pre-recorded over Skype. Hello, and welcome to Civil Politics here on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM out of Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm Michael Dow, hosting tonight. I'm joined by Sue Timberlake and Jonah Roberts. Hey there. Beep, boop, beep. That's your cue, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, we were sleeping. You were talking. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I have that Zoom. effect on people. Yeah, I thought it was Z's, but it's Zoom. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> It's so Jesus. Sad. <laughs> so hi, Mike. Hi, genre. Hey, Mike. So uh, just before we uh, we get into the show, right away, I just want to mention we are recording this the week of October sixteenth, and as of this recording, you have uh, eight uh, more days to register to vote here in Massachusetts if you want to vote in the presidential election this year. So that's uh, October twenty fourth. Early voting will have already begun here in the state uh, on Monday the 19th, but you can sign up and register through the 24th if you haven't already, and you really should, because even though, you know, Massachusetts is pretty blue and likely to be all, you know, Biden, 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 you know, every vote does matter, and there are lots of races up and down the ballot that are going to be important. And uh, ballot questions. And ballot questions. We did a show about our instructions to you on how to vote on the ballot questions, so, you know. You should totally listen to those. Yeah, mostly you should be sure to vote. <laughs> As always, there is a link to register to vote in our uh, show notes and on the website. We have that on every show, so just look look on there, click that link, and be able to you'll be able to register if you aren't registered already. Remember, we are uh, auto registering for the most part. Uh, in, and this in is from Matt. I was going to say Massachusetts because I don't think yeah. Holland really they could they could link to their stuff probably so another <laughs> Holland yeah. <laughs> so um, we, I think I think we have a listener in somebody's family we, members probably we have listeners <laughs> all over the world we are world famous I know radio that. personalities there Sue but uh <laughs> yes yes um but yet yeah, remember that uh, there are ballot questions and really important. There might be ballot questions for your county or your specific area. Yeah. We just dropped off our ballots at our polling place the other day. And on our ballots, there were four questions. There were the main two. And then there were there were a couple about climate change and about like how how our representatives should vote or something like that. Those are important, too. Yeah. And uh, I mailed my ballot in earlier this week. And there was a there was a, a question about a property tax override in in my town, which you know kind of matters. It's important too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's important too. So, and yes, and we do have listeners all over the world. I hope they. Uh, I hope the folks who are not uh, uh, able to vote in Massachusetts aren't totally bored by this. But we do love to hear from you, listeners, whether you're in Holland, Mexico, or somewhere in the Pacific Rim, and um, as well as you know here in the the Bay State. So you can email us at civilpoliticsradio at valleyfreeradio.org. 
at Civil Politics FM is how you tweet at us. And Facebook.com slash Civil Politics Radio is our community there. We do also have our own dedicated website, which is civilpoliticsradio.com. And that's got recordings of previous episodes of the show and supplemental episodes and also can provide you with, you know, lead you with links to things we talk about and also other podcasts in the Planetside Podcast Network, which Civil Politics is a proud member. So, and guys, so like we got the presidential election and there's all kinds of stuff going on, but weirdly there's no like, oh my God, we have to talk about this moment kind of this week. So I'd like to take a step back and talk a bit about how the office of the presidency has changed, like how it's expanded. And this is obviously to some extent that's going to have to do with the uh, current, as of this recording, occupant of the White House, our 45th president. But, you know, it's it's part of a trend that's that was continuing long before this under Barack Obama and both Bushes and George, uh, Bill, George Clinton. <laughs> that would be fun. That would, that would be president. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> Debate night would be amazing. <laughs> Our new healthcare policy is the mothership will pay for everything. So <laughs> anyway, yeah. So there are lots of questions about how the federal government is structured and issues that have come up because the checks and balances are a great idea, but to some extent they depend upon the other branches of government actually doing things. So there's how much power has been formally devolved, and then there's how much has sort of been allowed to to slip in there. So, uh, Sue, I'm going to put you on the spot here because, Uh uh, well, not only because the president's technically a Republican and so are you, but I mean, more to the point... You know, I'm a liberal and I believe in a lot of government programs that can be helpful to people in terms of providing economic and social benefits and legal protections and all kinds of other things. You know, I think there are lots of problems that need to be tackled collectively and publicly and the government's the way to do that. You, on the other hand, are a small government Republican and you don't agree with me on, well, you agree with me on some of those points, but not all of them. So I was wondering if you had thoughts about how the... uh, presidential power creep is going. I think before we go into specifically the pre- presidential power creep, we should define what the uh, like just the base definition of the power should be or sure. or is there's the uh the congress, the three the three branches of our government, the congress that makes Art- the laws. Article 1 Article yep. 1 is the house, right? Um it's well house and just Senate. just in just in general Legislative yeah. makes laws. The court defines laws, and, and the executive branch enforces laws. Mm-hmm. That is the base separation of powers that we have. One makes the laws. One makes sure that the laws are carried out, and one makes sure that the laws make sense. Yes, and I would I would add to Congress that they have the power of the purse, which most people don't realize. Yes, that it is really they who who can decide what goes in the budget and what doesn't. That's also like telling, saying basically the legislative says how the government is supposed to be run, and then the yep. executive runs the government. The executive spends the money that Congress has authorized the executive exactly. to spend. So that, yeah, so yeah, the power of the person, everything falls under that umbrella. So, yeah. Sue, uh, Mike was asking 
what were you asking, Mike? Sorry, I interrupted. <laughs> I thought that was important to, to make sure everybody knew. How can I, I possibly be a Republican? I think that's his usual question. I mean, no, that's not my question that's... all the time, but, you know, I don't ask no, that not... constantly or else that's the only thing that the, was not at the all, show would be about. That was not at all what uh, I was I was getting at, though. My God, oh, how I... dare you? Jacques yeah, well, Hughes! I... Oh, wait, no, sorry. <laughs> no, I, I... And I'm guilty, but... Um, I... I'm asking for your more philosophical, like, You've been around and an adult watching how the government has changed and things we've let the president get away with. So, I mean, for example, Congress has the power of the purse, but the president, uh, President Trump, has just sort of taken money from one thing Congress authorized and spent it on stuff because Congress didn't authorize. And it's like, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> well, the way I heard your question, which you maybe didn't mean it, is that, you know, all the way back to Reagan, there were signing statements and all kinds of expansions of presidential power. But okay. if you're in favor of small government, how can you be in favor of expanded presidential power? That's kind of how I heard your question, because, you know, there's a lot of layers to this. So I think there's a role for each part of government, and they should stick to the roles they have. And I do, I do think some of the problems we're having... Uh, just to sort of start at the 20,000 foot level is that Congress has stopped doing their job. Mm. So a lot of stuff is either being taken over by the president, you know, by design or just because there's a vacuum. And then the poor Supreme court is stuck in a position where the legislature hasn't really defined what they meant so that the Supreme court ends up having to define things and, you know, fill in gaps where there isn't, there isn't enough substance in there or the executive branch does the same thing. Congress says clean water and the executive branch says, well, what do you mean by that? Oh, you're not going to tell us you can't do that. Well, we'll make up the rules. And then, you know, the Supreme court ends up sort of uh, officiating whether or not uh, just, for example, the, um, the clean water act got expanded under Obama and um, they used all the water, you know, the waterways and, you know, it's sort of what does clean water mean? And the way that the EPA was structured, it was actually structured under the Interstate Commerce Clause. So, you know, it's sort of like we don't really know what waterway means. Does it mean, you know, sort of a runoff pond or does it mean um, I can't think of the name for the ponds that come and go where salamanders are. But it's it's that's the problem that I see is that the branches of government haven't done the actual jobs that they have. And so there's this sort of negotiating over who's going to get all the money or who's going to get all the power. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, that's how I see the problem. Well, when it comes to uh, environmental legislation, for example, with, with all kinds of, of legislation, I suppose, especially, but stuff where there's a lot of scientific and technical discussion, you know, like what is a safe level of mercury in drinking water, for example, and what is the best way to deal with toxic runoff from, from mining operations and whatever? I think there's a lot of, of latitude for the executive branches to exercise the oversight that's been delegated to them by Congress. Or promulgate regulations. Right. And I, well, and that I think is, is appropriate because, you know, Congress gets together and passes a law saying we want cleaner water and air. And that's great. Yes. And then they say, so the executive agency will have the power to determine exactly what those safety standards should be. And that makes sense because that means the executive agency can take the, the, the advice and uh, research of scientists that 
you know, might be constantly updating and, and respond more flexibly to new information. You know, like, oh, we've discovered that this is toxic. So now we're adding this to the list of things that are toxic and you can't, you know, release without a permit into the atmosphere or whatever. You know, whereas if, if you waited on Congress to specifically enumerate what to do about all the environmental regulations, if you waited for those to be enshrined as laws passed by Congress, it would take forever. Yeah. And I think it would it would mean that, you know, while the federal government can be famously uh, slow and ponderous and and awkward, executive agencies are able to be far more nimble in terms of how they issue and then update regulations than Congress. And uh, yeah. and I got to say, I, I think one thing Congress did that uh, uh, in the past 20 years that it was a good idea was passing the Executive Review Act so that if there's a, an executive regulation that's been passed, Congress can just say, nope, and can throw that out within six months of it passing, you know, just just because. Yep, if they do something wild. Yeah. Or in the opinion of Congress being wild. Well, part of it, too, I think, is the tension between the parties and the inability to get things done. And, you know, in the modern context, it has, you know, right now we're sort of we're we're sort of stymied with the House and Senate being controlled by two different parties. And that also creates some opportunities and some inabilities to get things done. And you mentioned, um, you know, we were talking about the EPA a little bit, but, you know, Nixon really expanded his power when he created those bills, the Clean Water and the Clean Air Act. Well, Congress and that was a huge. Ex- <laughs> yes, but he he got them to. I mean, he signed it. He 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 was the initiative for whatever reason, whatever political reason. But, yeah, that's a vast expansion of power of the government. Sort of like the FDA's, I think, based on the Commerce Clause, too. You know, the ability to regulate drugs and make sure food is safe. And, you know, it, it's it's interesting, but that step into the environmental arena was a big step. And, well, you know, people applaud it. Well, so Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce. And what goes, uh, you know, the, the fumes that come out of a smokestack in Ohio become an issue in New York and Massachusetts. So I think the logic for regulating, uh, uh, you know, for creating regulations on pollution uh, in the air and the water and so forth makes perfect sense. Yep. Under I that agree rubric with you. and is a good idea in general anyways. Oh, so, okay. Well, I was just, you know, because one could argue that that was... Well, it was an expansion of power. Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm arguing. Sorry, was my point not clear? I guess not. No, no. I, I well, I just <laughs> I wasn't sure week. if that if you were arguing <laughs> yeah. that like it is an expansion of power and it's one you support. Perhaps not the way it's done, but yeah, the goal of it absolutely. Well, so Well, let me just go point ahead. out that sort of if you talk about toxic, we'll talk about toxics for 2 seconds. Mm-hmm. You could say that you can't put a chemical on the market until it's proven safe or you know, proven what the exposure does to humans or mice or whatever creature, or you can let it go on the market and then regulate it after the fact, you know, which is how we had a lot of growth. But that's that's the problem with arsenic and mercury and some of those things that we were producing them and they're in the air and the water. And, you know, most of the lakes have uh, mercury contamination at this point from some of the paper factories. But, you know, you can you can prevent the growth and the progress I'm I'm just saying this philosophically. You can prevent it by saying you have to prove it's safe before you can do it. Or you can catch up after the fact with laws, you know, when you discover there's a problem, sort of doing it by exception, assuming that most of the stuff that gets produced isn't toxic. And I'm just laying that out there as those are two different regulatory schemes. 
Sure. And is there is is there one you think is better? I wasn't going to go into that because I think it really depends. But for drugs, you know, they're not supposed to, or for food, they're not supposed to let you put things in food until it's been tested or drugs until they've been tested. But the truth is there's this big loophole they created where you can, you can put almost anything in food as long as it's been being put into food. You argue that it was sort of an existing compound. So a lot of places like, you know, um, maraschino cherries, which I happen to like, yeah. The exception that was used for them was that nobody eats them. They're just decoration. And it's, right. that's that's the red dye exception. <laughs> so, you know, I, that's why I say it depends. It sort of depends on, on what you do with it. But as a chemist, I go, oh, God, okay. I probably shouldn't eat those anymore. But. Well, that, uh, you know, make the product, you know, you know, burn the whatever, have the emissions go out there in the world and figure out if they're dangerous later approach is how we got leaded gasoline and the yep. really serious health effects that it had on generations of people around the world. It's easy to come up with reasons to do things uh, if you're in business because uh, ultimately, you know, for-profit business is there to make money. So it's like, hey, uh, It'll be cheaper for us if we do X, Y, or Z. And yep. externalize the cost. Yep. Right, exactly. Externalities. So like, right. So it's cheaper for us to make and operate engines and make gasoline if we put lead in the gasoline. The fact that it's going to kill people around the world isn't our problem. You know? It just um, knocks off IQ points for children, you know. Right, exactly. No big deal. <laughs> and part of the issue also is the the pollution, the effects of a lot of these dangerous industries and and business practices and whatnot are of course disproportionately felt by the poor and of course the poor are disproportionately not white people uh that's sort of how the the whole system is designed to favor white people so yeah it's it's the uh there's a reason why all right did i mention this on i don't know if i mentioned this on this show or another discussion i had but some epidemiologists recently did a study Uh, They were looking into mortality rates during the flu pandemic 100 years ago. And what they discovered was that uh, if you broke it down by ethnicity and and region, what they discovered was that the great flu pandemic uh, in 1918 increased mortality rates for white Americans so that they were roughly the level of what they were for black Americans in a normal year. Yeah. But it didn't level the playing field because for for blacks it was even worse than that. Right, right. right? They they but, they, but, they also yeah. got the flu and it, it killed them too. Yes, but it basically meant that just the ordinary conditions of living in Jim Crow America was as deadly as the terrifying flu pandemic for black Americans, and that that was just normal. Yeah, you know, and that's one of the reasons why expanding the power of the federal government to allow it to regulate the what goes into the air and the water and our food and so forth make sure our food and drugs are pure is a really good idea you know it's yeah well i think things happen to to rich people sometimes or the elite but it doesn't happen for very long before the 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 people with power you know get active and call their favorite congressman or go and sit with their favorite president and get it changed. And I, you know, you could make the argument in Rome that because there was lead in everything, there was also lead in wine. I mean, it was, 
it was pretty prevalent. So I assumed that not everybody drank as much wine as rich people. That's an assumption. I don't know if that's true, but you know, sometimes things do affect the wealthy or the elite. They just don't continue chronically because they mount their powerful, you know, whatever the power they have and they try and stop it. And so you look at someplace like Flint, you know, it wasn't, it, it, you know, it wasn't a very wealthy city and it really went on for, it's still going on actually. Right. I think. And so that power, you know, the power of the executive, say the executive in, in uh, Michigan, they listen to the people that have power and then you have to figure out who has power and why we were talking a little bit earlier about the ability to give out indulgences. You know, that is, that yeah. is a power. I mean, if you believe it, you can, <laughs> Yeah. You know, you can the ability to, to pardon, you know, to reassign voter districts, stopping the census. I mean, those are all those That's are all true. sort of executive powers. Well, uh, let's take an example of executive power from previous administration, the deferred action on childhood admissions, uh, DACA. Oh, you know, yep. You know, which was essentially President Obama using sort of executive fiat to create this program where it's like, we won't throw you out of the country for not being a citizen without a proper visa if you meet these requirements. And it arguably... And you have to sign up. Yep. Right. And the logic was essentially the, the same logic as prosecutorial discretion. Like, yes, we have the power to do this, but we can't go after all of the people who we could, in theory, deport from the United States for immigration violations. We're going to focus on the ones who are, you know, dangerous criminals or whatever, or, you know, foreign spies or whatever, you know, but the people who are actively harming uh, our communities and not the people who are just living here, living their lives and doing whatever. And Paying their taxes. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and I think that's perfectly uh, a perfectly sensible thing to do. But it is also uh, sort of at the very limits of what a president can or should be able to do. You think it's over the limits? I, you know, I'm. I think that it. I, I think I could. I can. I can see the argument either way. Like I'm certainly not an expert on on immigration law, but I, I've I've read you know some think pieces by people who are, and I I can see the logic saying that it was ultra vires. It was going over the line of what a president should be able to do. And, you know, that it was executive overreach. And okay, It should have been legislated, kind of. I mean, that's, yeah. would you be yeah. happier if it had been legislated? Oh, absolutely. And so would yeah. President Obama. <laughs> yeah. you know, and like, he I tried. Think they they yeah. had tried, right. It's, it's worth noting that it was something he only did in his second term after it was clear he wasn't going to be able to do anything with Congress yeah. to get, get something done. Yeah. And, and again, that gets back to what, one of the reasons why, as you observed, one of the reasons why presidents, you know, have power that isn't really strictly on the books, that isn't necessarily an enumerated power is because Congress lets them get away with things, sometimes explicitly also. So you're saying if Congress had done its, its job, Obama wouldn't even have gone there. Yeah. If they'd, if they'd legislated it. He probably he wouldn't have gone there if they if they'd taken care of it and given him a bill to sign, because he had originally said that he thought it was beyond his powers. Yes, to do that. Yes, yeah. he did. And I and I, he's a constitutional lawyer, wasn't he? He taught it. He yeah, taught constitutional yeah, yeah, absolutely. law. Absolutely. And I, I I well remember 
him and you know talking about that at some length at a at a town hall when a voter asked him like why don't you just do this and he said because i'm i'm the president not the king yeah yeah another thing actually reminds me it's sort of in contrast that i remember president obama did and he was widely criticized and certainly you know there were a lot of uh moving parts to the issue so i understand why it might have gotten lost in the mix but Several years ago, it was clear that the Assad regime in Syria was using chemical weapons, and that was a violation of the chemical weapons treaty ban. And President Obama had said that would be a, you know, a red line. But once it was clear that that was happening, he didn't instantly send in the troops. He said, well, I'm going to go to Congress, and I'm going to get Congress to authorize this. And Congress did not. And, yeah. you know, uh, I, I can certainly understand people criticizing Obama for going back on on strong rhetoric like red lines and so forth. But on the other hand, it would and be poisoning. Yeah. And and international treaty obligations to to crack down on using poison gas. Oh, and the thing my mom used to love to say, you were talking about how things affect rich people and then it stops happening as soon as as soon as they get upset with it. The example she always gave was the use of poison gas in World War 1. And she said it seemed like a good idea until the winds changed, and then it was blown back <laughs> back to the general's tent. <laughs> yeah, and then the generals yeah. decided it was a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, as they ran away with their masks, trying to get away from it. Yes, right, exactly. So, well, and at I, least they knew how to wear masks. Right. So, yeah. well, ooh, burn. So I, I, I would just say point. that we should dwell on that point just for a second. They knew enough to wear masks. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the law of the jungle, isn't it? I sidetracked us. Wearing the masks or President Obama trying to defer to Congress and Republicans savaging him for it? Which which do you mean? No, when it blows back on the general's tent, things change. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, first law of the jungle. That's, that's yeah. law number 103 or something, I think. <laughs> I, I think Sorry. it's part of the golden rule. You know, those with the gold <laughs> make the rules. So. Yeah, exactly. But uh, so I, I sidetracked us there, but... You know, that was an example of the decision not to just attack Syria. You know, President Obama said, you know, this isn't covered by the authorization for, to use force after 9-11. You know, there's, we're not at war. I can't just attack another country. You know, I've, I've got to have authorization of Congress to exert military power like that. Uh, so you guys got to vote for me to do that. And wow, were the crickets loud. Yep. And you remember what Trump did when he first got in? The the Russians and and the Syrians had gassed. They thought oh, right, right, they right. thought they and could prove. They lost he dropped a, whole a bunch few of... bombs. Yeah, yeah uh, runways and I think Trump gave the gave Putin a heads up so he moved all his planes. But they they basically struck within hours or within days. And people yeah. like that. I remember you guys even like that. Both of you. I remember asking you. So is this a, you know? Is this okay? And then you both said that you thought that wasn't a terrible thing and that it was, you know, he warned him, he did it, you know, it was limited, it was proportional, and then it was over. And that's, you know, those are two different presidential styles. Right. Well, certainly Obama was comfortable with using, you know, airstrikes to blow things up and kill people. Yeah, he was. Yes. But, <laughs> uh, but, Especially people with drones. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, I remember that incident with the uh, airstrike on Syria, and I I remember at the time, yeah, I I was very uh, dubious about you know the president just sort of exerting unilateral authority, 
you know, but at the same time, I guess my point was like, well, if we're going to do something and perhaps we should, this seems about right. You know, blowing yeah. up some some military airfields seems like Where the stuff right, came from. Right. Seems like the right response as opposed to just a wholesale invasion or, or whatever. Yeah. And but and then too, a wholesale invasion. Control. Yeah, yeah. He didn't. You're mm-hmm. right. Like a wholesale invasion might have might actually have been the right thing to do, but that was certainly beyond what a president should have done off the bat on his own initiative. So and don't we know. don't know whether Trump took the temperature of Congress and and saw if they would go in or not. I don't think he would have done that. But, you know, at the time, we didn't really know what he was going to do because he was pretty new. Trump was new. Yes. But did he did he take the temperature of Congress and discover they wouldn't go for a full scale? So he did what he could or we don't really know that thought process. So I, whereas Obama I, clearly thought about it, said, I need mm-hmm. Congress and. Yeah. You know, put the uh, put the we, oars in the water and try tried to make it happen. We mentioned drones before. Mm. And that reminds me we should probably take a break because we're droning, droning on. <laughs> yeah, actually I was I was just about to ask about that. So yeah, <laughs> I made a joke. <laughs> yes. I'm contributing. <laughs> a you, sudden you strike from above. Yeah. You are a night owl because it's late, not late at night, but at night when we're recording this. And um, yeah, oh, genre God, is God, to life. Yeah, I am. A, I am <laughs> definitely a night owl. Um, but we should take flight for a few minutes. Uh. <laughs> I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. <laughs> I've taught you well, my young Padawan. So uh, we're going to take a short break here on civil politics on Valley Free Radio. Play some PSAs, promos, and station IDs, and then we'll be back with more in just a few minutes. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. Science is real from the Big Bang to Join me for Evidence-Based Radio Friday nights from 6 to 7 p.m. to learn more about science and skepticism. You can email questions or topic requests to evidencebasedradio at gmail.com. That's Friday nights from 6 to 7 on Valley Free Radio. Science, the facts are with science. Science is real. 
And we're back with Civil Politics here on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM out of Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm Michael Dow. I'm still talking with John Roberts and Sue Timberlake about executive branch power creep and uh, the way in which different parts of the government can either seize or let go powers that they should be keeping to themselves and the ways that can affect us. Uh, and Sue, you were actually, uh, as we were chit-chatting while we uh, took our mid-show break, you mentioned the complex interplay between the federal government and the states when it comes to our elections and our voting rights. And this is certainly like a like a hot issue. Um, one thing, for example, uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett in her testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, was asked about whether or not she, she supported uh, voting rights. And she refused to really commit to the issue, as with so many things, because it, it could be an issue that will come before the court, she said. So she was reluctant to uh, discuss it too openly, to, to make too many pronouncements that could box her in later. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm surprised the Supreme Court justices don't just get up and say, I can't discuss anything that might become before the Supreme Court. So that includes everything. Yes. Well, they that's it. They do. <laughs> and yet they still have to sit there and the, the, the senators still ask them questions. Uh, I, yeah, and make speeches. Yeah. Well, and I, I got to say, I think it's it's kind of alarming. Did you see what uh, Senator Harris, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, asked her? She asked. Uh, I didn't. I, I saw some of the pictures, so I assume it was good, whatever it was. Well, she asked Judge Barrett if uh, cigarette smoking caused cancer, and Judge Barrett said yes. And then uh, Senator Harris asked if the coronavirus was infectious, and Judge Barrett said that it was. And then Senator Harris asked if climate change was real. And Judge Barrett said, well, you know, that's a complicated political controversy, so I don't want to take a position on that. <laughs> oh, perfect. Oh, that's a prosecutor mm. for you. Yeah. I miss that. I'll have to look for that. Yeah. So I tell you, sometimes these, these discussions are really fun if they weren't so horrifying and affect everybody so much. But it's, yeah, oh, wow, I missed that one. That was just, I don't think it was today, I think it was yesterday, but... Uh, it, it yeah. was in the news today. I was reading about it today. So, yeah, I like it when people get people to to sort of really clarify who they are. Yes, which is still something that can happen in these uh, these congressional hearings. But uh, yeah, and she could have said, "I'll leave that to the scientists on all of them," and not answered. But she got her to reveal herself. So, you know, we've talked about the three branches of government, and it's the fourth estate, the media. Is that what people usually refer to? Yes, that's yeah. Is that the media? I mean, that's that's a that's a reference to medieval European social structure. But yes, that's that's the idea. Yeah. So where are the voters in this? Are they the fifth estate? The voters would be the voters would be the third estate, the third estate. So people say media is the fourth branch of government, which definitely ties into sort of the structure of the U.S. federal constitutional government. But that was an adaptation of an expression that existed for longer, which was that the media was the fourth estate. And in sort of the political theory of Europe in, say, like the 12th century, you had the first estate, and this is, I think, specifically French, but you had the, the premier estat, which was the, the clergy, the priests, 
then you had the Dizium Estat, which was the the nobility, the knights and the, the, the barons and the kings and so forth. And then you had the third estate, which was the vast mass of the people, the peasantry. And so practically speaking, the, the, the third estate were the, the people who were ruled and the first two estates were the people who did the ruling. And of course, uh, you know, so it's a mixed metaphor, right? And of course, it's, uh, it's, well, our three branches of government. Yeah. Got it. Oh, that's cool. Well, and if you, Thank if you. you look at uh, the, uh, you know, medieval aristocracy, of course, they ruled because they were genuinely better people and had been made so by God and they deserve to rule over the grubby peasants and because they were inferior. So there's a dig at journalists because <laughs> if the peasants are the lowest of the low in the third estate, well, what does that make the fourth estate? <laughs> you see? Journal yeah. people have been hating yeah. journalists yeah. for quite some was... time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't realize that it was a mixed metaphor like that. Oh yeah. That people had just sort of mm -hmm. commandeered it. But so I guess what I was trying to point out is that the people are really in charge because we all get to vote. But we're often forgotten sort of in the dynamics of government until, you know, something happens and people demand change. But that whole vo voting rights arena, you know, that's another intersection where the state and feds, I mean, it, it, we've gotten rid of the, the Voting Right Act, or at least the, the meat of it, and all sorts of bad behaviors are taking place. And I, I think I mentioned earlier that my party behaved very badly and is putting up fake voter drop boxes in California. They've been caught at it and they've, you know, pulled the ones they could find. But, uh, you know, what bad they, behavior. They've been defending their yes. their decision yes. about that. Yeah, yeah they, they won't tell them where any others are that they haven't yeah. found. Yeah. Well, and, and the issue isn't that they set up drop boxes per se. I mean, that just having drop boxes that weren't set up by election officials might well be against the, the law in California. But beyond that, beyond collecting ballots, they have put these boxes out there with big labels on them saying that they are official ballot collection official. boxes and that have references to the legal penalties for tampering with them. And that's yeah. just, you know, like that is definitely uh, not permitted under California <laughs> law. Like election officials uh, are supposed I, to do all that. So that was really, um, yeah. It's really bad. I, I, you know, I hope somebody, all the people involved in that go to jail. I mean, that is just, I mean, it's almost treasonous in my opinion. But I know treason only happens under war, but you know what I mean. Seditious. Yeah. Seditious. I I just I think it's un-American. Are we going to go know. back to the original question? What was like? It? Why? Yes. Yeah. Why are you? With <laughs> <laughs> that was oh, your original oh question, God. John. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as I said, sometimes the weasels take over Toad Hall. Yeah. And you have to join in with the badgers to get it back. <laughs> But yeah, no, they're very bad behavior. And uh, like I said, I hope I hope some people go to jail for that, because that is just that's un-American, unpatriotic. I don't know whatever you want to call it, whatever your words are, but very very bad behavior. Yeah, I wish it was surprising. <sighs> I am sorry. I <laughs> no, but the thing I, it's that all you, right. you said that We're you were talking about how other. the uh, uh, you were talking about how you know the people have the vote, and that is not true. Many, many people do not have the vote. 
many That's people true. just are denied being able to vote because of a myriad of reasons and not just in the past few years after the Voting Rights Act was was gutted and the the states that were covered under it just went wild with with yep. changing voting laws. I'm just talking about Very just in targeted. general. Yeah, yeah in general targeted. voting has been has been the purview of the of the middle and upper class for the most part. And yeah. even then the vote like voting does not make as much of a difference as it's claimed to be because of the way that our system is set up. You mean the if way we only draw give you two choices, for example? Yep. Yep. And, and if you only have two choices to vote on and you didn't pick either one or like either one, because the parties created that, you know, that's, that's, that's why a lot of people don't vote. They don't like, they don't like the choices they have and they don't know how to change them, how to get the, you know, how to fix it. Yeah. And, and we were talking a little bit during the break um, about Bill Barr and, you know, sort of that tension between, you know, the attorney general in the federal government and the things that people are trying to do in the state and local level that, um, you know, are getting overruled or undermined or prevented or yeah. And it's really, it's sort of prosecutorial power in a way, in a sense. I mean, it's the same, it's the same thing that Obama used to help the, the DACA kids. I, I don't know. It just, it's a, it's, it's, it's not that it's complicated. It's that there's no accountability. Hmm. Well, I think <clears throat> just to talk for a moment about the justice department under, under Bill Barr, uh, the way that the Justice Department has totally reversed itself and tried to drop all the charges against Michael Flynn, you know, after his guilty plea, you know, uh, the, like the trial is over, bar the sentencing, and the judge was deferring sentencing to uh, allow Mr. Flynn to uh, uh, render assistance to the Justice Department to, uh, you know, justify a, a, a lighter sentence. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, prosecutors do get to uh, drop charges when they think it's a good idea. You know, like that's part of what prosecutorial discretion means. You prosecute stuff that you think makes sense or, you, you know, you don't push cases you don't think you can win and so forth. But in, in this case, uh, you know, the, 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 this, to me, it's pretty clearly a uh, attempt to sort of nakedly uh, assist uh, one of President Trump's political cronies. And it's particularly galling, I think, because, uh, you know, they could just, they, 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 the Justice Department could just, uh, you know, step, sit back, let the judge pass sentence, and then President Trump could issue a, a, a pardon because of their federal charges. Yep. The president has power to just wipe those away. And, yeah. uh, so there's no danger of, uh, Mr. Flynn going to jail at all, uh, if president Trump doesn't want him to, but instead, and it would okay. be, it would be transparent because right. you would see that, that Trump pardoned him. Right. Yeah. It's very transparent. But instead, Whereas this is <laughs> right. This is, uh, you know, there's a reason why a number of career prosecutors in the justice department who've been involved in this case and others too, but in this case, have resigned rather than 
uh, sign on to various court filings that have been happening in the past year or so. You know, they 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 just, you know, it's like, uh, you know, the 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 Justice Department issued a sentencing recommendation and then they they changed it. You know, and then they were trying to drop the charges. Actually, the sentencing recommendation was with Roger Stone. I apologize. But so, you know, uh, uh, these career prosecutors have been quitting rather than sign on to statements uh, to official court filings that uh, they, they can't support. And there's no reason to do all this except to force out the, the people of the Justice Department who won't toe the line, who won't do as they're told, and to, to send the message that, uh, uh, you know, we're in charge and we're doing it our way. And, you know, if you don't like it, tough. And it's 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 uh, an appalling view of executive power. Yeah. Well, and didn't you say that somebody signed on as the friend of the friend of the court? Oh, and, um, uh, there, there's a yeah. there's a podcast I listen to called Opening Arguments, and the uh, attorney on that show, Andrew Torres, uh, uh, filed an amicus curiae brief in the Michael Flynn case about uh, the whether about the appropriateness of the the judge in the actual federal district court uh, who's handling the, the criminal case, uh, whether or not he, he can review the uh, application from the Justice Department, which is concurred with by Michael Flynn's defense team, that they, the federal government should just drop all charges and, and moot the whole thing. And uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's well worth listening to. I, I can't do it justice in the few minutes we have here even if I understood it as well as, you know, an actual attorney. Uh, but I've mentioned the show. It's a great show. It's definitely worth listening to. Uh, uh, but among other things, they mentioned that apparently uh, the Justice Department has recently been uh, filing false statements in support of Michael Flynn as part of their efforts. And I, I just, I don't know what to say. You know, I just don't know yeah, what f- to say. Filing false statements. That that almost sounds like, you know, the South (laughs) when, you know, Mississippi was burning and you had, you know, the the local courts, you know, just going along with what the KKK was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Filing false statements. See, that is like. Well, it's it's what Richard Nixon wanted from his Justice Department and didn't get. Yeah. Yeah. So. And that they all resigned, right? Elliot Richardson, all of them resigned. Well, instead of uh, doing Robert yeah. Bork didn't, and that I that was the reason why Robert Bork was turned down for a Supreme Court uh, seat in 1987 because, like, no, no, <laughs> you were the guy who said yes, Mr. President, when Nixon asked, demanded that mm-hmm. somebody fire the the prosecutors investigating him, and you're the one who said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. Mm. I, yeah. I I think Wait. absolutely agree that that made him unfit. Morally unfit to serve on the Supreme Court, but well, and you know, Bill Barr was around for the Oliver North adventure. Yes. So I I don't know why you Democrats can I say that you Democrats? Well, I'm um, I am you part Democrats. Of part, yeah. You know, you know, basically believed him when he said, "Oh no, I I you know believe in transparency and the rule of law," and he believes strongly, from what I understand, in the expansion of executive power. Right? He thinks it's almost unlimited. Uh, in his perspective, so. that that does seem to be the case. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I, but I, what if 
I do wonder to what extent, like the, the, the goalposts seem to move depending upon who holds the executive office. Um, there are definitely times when the Republican Party seems to be more interested in states' rights than, than federal power, but uh, that does seem to change as when, when they, uh, who controls the Depends federal government. Depends on the topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and states' rights, I mean, part of it is a constitution. Well, you've, you've read that part of the constitution to us before, but anything not you know, explicitly laid out remains with the states, which you know, creates no end of adventure. And I think that's actually a particular problem uh, when it comes to uh, elections. Like, I, I understand why. It's like, well, states have, have elections in their state, so states should run elections. But when it comes to, you know, the, the office of the president, um, there are real problems when each state does things a little differently. Uh, I think we really need oh, to have, uh, like, a one national standard for these national offices, of which, admittedly, there are only two. <laughs> well, look at the caucuses and some of the Michigats that went on with those. And those are party-run. Yeah. You know, they're not really the the state, but that's how they, you know, that's how they yeah. do their first their first run. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, and I assume some of that's historical, that when they were bringing the states on board, they just wanted to let them do their thing. They didn't want to force them into too much so that they join the union, mm. right? There was sort of like, there was a lot of rights that were yep. remained with the state because, you know, we're United States. We're not a, we're not one country in some ways. Do you think it would we're make around. sense to, to change how some of the uh, federal offices work? Because, you know, here in Massachusetts, of course, we vote for governor and lieutenant governor, which is, you know, uh, parallel to how we elect a president and vice president. But here in Massachusetts, we, and we go ahead. And we and we elect them together. So at one time, you could have one of each or different parties, and they wouldn't speak to each other. Sure. So they they you have you have to vote for the same two now. So you you can't just vote for the one individual. You have to vote for both of them together. But we also yeah, um, vote for the state attorney general and the you know the secretary of state. You know, uh, various important state offices. So do you think maybe some of the uh, these important cabinet positions should also be elected? That maybe they shouldn't all be appointed by the president? You know, maybe the attorney general should be independently elected uh, in a national campaign? Well, what do you do with all your campaign workers when you win? You have to have some positions to, to stuff them in. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, well, that's what they're for, right? That's the reward. You get an ambassadorship or something if you raise a lot of money. Um, I I like elected offices, although, you know, judges sometimes, I guess, it depends. But like locally here, we've talked before, you know, the city clerk mm -hmm. is fairly new. She's been in the office for a long time in, in the city clerk's office, but she only recently rose to the level of the head of the department and the mayor here in Northampton is trying to make it an appointed position. And yet it's not unlike the balance of power. You know, they run the elections, make sure that, you know, people aren't stuffing ballots and things. So I have very strong feelings that that should be an elected position because you want that balance of power. So I tend to like elected positions because if they're not doing a good job, you know, there's a way to change it up. But if you have, you know, a strong mayor 
you know, the treasurer now is appointed. That used to be an elected position. Um, they're trying to push to make the city clerk appointed and not elected. I I like I like that checks and balances version, but it does make it harder to get things done. So, you know, my natural tendency is, you know, divide up the power and, you know, they sort of check each other. I, I don't know. Where do you guys stand on that stuff? Well, I, I just it just occurred to me just now to think about that. But just if we had an independently elected secretary of justice, or, you know, attorney general, whatever you however you want to put it. Yeah. In theory, anyways, it means that because that person was not appointed by the president, um, they could, you know, better resist his... Be more independent. Right, exactly. Be more independent. Um, How about a permanent lifetime uh, lifetime appointment? Uh, I'm not sure that's or a good... election. I, I'm not sure that's a good yeah. idea. Um, yeah. I, I think... That could go really wrong. I think the, the logic of, of having uh, lifetime appointments for justices makes some sense because we don't want the people who are... Uh, sort of handle, handling, editing, and revising our laws to be subject to the same kind of uh, public whims as as congressional legislators, but um, because it is uh, it is also a more technical branch of government in a way, um, you know, uh, uh, mm. you know, legislators. You know, legislators are are there trying to marshal the public and 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 provide leadership. And so, you know, if, if I were a senator, I wouldn't necessarily have to understand all the details of the many issues that might come before me. Uh, but I would have aides who do that. But the whole yeah. point of appointing a, ju- uh, a judge or especially a justice in one of the appellate or Supreme Courts is they're an expert on this stuff. They understand the law pretty well and know a lot about it. So, yeah, politicians and study it and know the history. Right. I mean that that is a job where they're being appointed for their expertise, whereas presidents and and Congress people are being chosen, uh, well, for who knows why, but for for. for I, was gonna yeah. say, I was I was hanging on your every word to hear what you were saying. Going to say as to why. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, this is going to be good. What's this? <laughs> well, who knows? And it might. I mean, as as uh, the twenty sixteen election shows, is it, it it clearly isn't for their uh, detailed knowledge of important government functions and uh, experience with actually administering uh, federal departments. So. Oh, the last couple of elections, it's been changed. You know, they wanted to, yeah. uh, people wanted Obama to change it and they they got fed up. And I think that's how Trump got in is they wanted. Well, we've said this before, knock over the apple cart. I just want to point out, which, just which quickly, certainly done. <laughs> it, we, um, yeah, um, that, you know, Congress is the Senate and the House. The House is really short terms. So they spend all their time groveling with the public trying to get reelected yeah. every two years. Whereas the senators have a little more, they're almost more like not a lifetime appointment of a judge, but they're a little bit more stable and they can, they can sort of withstand the political fads a little bit. You know, if something comes up for a year or two, it kind of blows over by the sixth year. So it's, it's an interesting thing to have those two branches, those two parts of um, the bicameral um, legislative branch. It's, I just think that's an interesting design. Because they really are very different in some ways. 
Well, and how they behave. Well, well, here's a question uh, for that we can mull over for another time when we have a slow news day. The uh, Senate used to be a they it used to be just the representative of the state's interests and not the people's interests. Right? They were they were they could oh, be appointed. Wow. They appointed. weren't elected by the popular suffrage at all. Yeah. Originally, originally the the House was the the people. They were community leaders or community members that the people elected to go represent them the the senate was people like the the house of lords basically people that were appointed by the state that's why there are two senators for each state no matter how many people are in the state yeah and so and that was changed to yeah that was changed in the 30s i believe yeah uh, to and that is when senators started getting elected also by the people and that is a question that we can ask like at another time should that have happened i think there's uh yeah. i and think there's it, a lot of uh, possible great- reformation of congress to be discussed but we are yeah. out of time today so uh oh. yeah Exactly. So uh, thank you all for listening to Civil Politics here on Valley Free Radio. We've got a great mix of music coming up after this, uh, which I hope you'll enjoy. And uh, we'll be back with more next week. Good night. Civil Politics is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com.